0: Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up and coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative, and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trenton and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Uh, Well, good evening, everyone. This is Rob Orson with Emerging Revolutionary War. Uh, Welcome back. This is our one-year anniversary. We started doing these uh, Sunday night chats one year ago, um, and Phil and I and a few others, our friend Mark, have kept them going, and we're going to keep them going because we have a good time, having a drink, talking history, uh, and and sharing some some great information from some great local historians and historians across the country. Uh, so I'm joined with Phil Greenwald here in the bottom of my screen, and I'm with our great speaker tonight, Alex Kane, who. talk about here in a little bit but i just want to say thank you for everyone for joining us tonight Um, at the end of our talk we'll talk about some of the things we have coming up we have a symposium coming up we have a bus tour in november coming up and then we'll talk about uh our next talk in two weeks the battle of alamance um so i'm joined we are joined today with alexander kane who is if you have not read any of his information about lexington you're missing out of course, tonight is the anniversary of the night before the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Lots going on uh, tonight in Boston in 1775. Mm-hmm. We thought it'd be great to have Alex on tonight to kind of talk about his love and interest in Lexington. Um, Phil and I wrote a book about Lexington and Concord and really relied on a lot of the research that Alex did and is doing right now there locally. So welcome, Alex. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. I'm thrilled to be here so um we have a bunch of me and phil have been talking the past couple of days we have a bunch of questions to ask you and okay. we we'll probably, we'll probably have more than what we need what we, what we have time for um and we'll also allow people to chat on the uh, put in the chat about some questions too great but first question uh you know and we ask this everybody who gets involved in this information how did you how did you come to love this story the story of lexington in 1775 You know, it it
2: goes back to literally probably when I was in second grade. Uh, I I mean, I am born and bred New England. Uh, I grew up in a region of Massachusetts that is called the Merrimack Valley, which is northeast of Lexington and Concord. And the bicentennial was very big uh, in my community. And I remember about second or third grade, two things happened. Uh, The first was I, I, my social studies teacher took us on a tour of Minuteman National Park. And I remember buying myself a toy musket and and the entire afternoon I spent pretending I was a Minuteman in in the backyard. Um, But my teacher also realized that I I had a big interest in history and actually handed me a book. It it was a children's book. Uh, It might have been Johnny Tremaine. I don't remember. But it was on the American Revolution. And it just simply sparked my interest by the time I was a senior in high school, um, I was bitten by uh, the reenacting bug. Uh, I joined in 1989, that's how old I am. I joined a organization called the Lexington Minutemen, which uh, reenacts annually the battles of Lexington and Concord. And I found based when I went to Merrimack College uh, for undergrad school, I minored in American history. I, I Majored in economics, big mistake. I should have done the reverse. Yes, <laughs> um, I don't know what I was thinking, but uh, I remember a couple of my American history professors encouraging me to, to start researching everything about Lexington and Concord, and it just simply took off uh, after that. It just became a passion uh, of everything. April nineteenth, uh, you know, was something that I eat, uh, eat, sleep, and and live. Uh, much to the point that both my uh, my wife and children just roll their eyes at
1: me at this particular point. I think we all have that reaction. I have a <laughs> wife and two kids too who probably will not be watching me tonight. So
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, I mean, I know we're going to be focusing on obviously April 18th, April 19th, but yeah. I think some of the information you have about Lexington as a community before before April 19th and what mm-hmm. happens in Lexington afterwards is pretty amazing. So Thank if you. you can share briefly a little bit about what, what was Lexington like in the 1770s before uh, the American Revolution? The, the interesting thing I found about Lexington prior to the battle on April 19th,
2: 1775, is when you look at the politics and the religious setting uh, of Lexington versus the rest of Middlesex County versus the rest of Massachusetts Bay Colony, Lexington was actually on the forefront of uh, radicalism. Uh, Lexington was considered a very radical community, and that was the result predominantly of their religious leader, the Reverend Jonas Clark. The Reverend Jonas Clark arrived in Lexington in the 1750s, and he almost instantly established himself as the leader of the community. By 1765, initially, Lexington was was horrified at the Stamp Act and, and the result of British policy. But at the same time, they were opposed to the violence in Boston. But if you jump about two or three years later to about uh, 1767, 1768, Lexington has actually pretty much surpassed all the surrounding communities and is actually taking a very radical position where the community is actually advocating that they will defend their rights as English uh, citizens to the point of almost open rebellion. By 1769, uh, Lexington's uh, Reverend Jonas Clark is actually preaching uh, that the town needs to prepare for war with England. So this is taking place very early on. This continues up to 1774, where at this point uh, the community um, is leading the most of Middlesex County in its opposition to, uh, to uh, British policy. And, and this kind of th- is really unique because Lexington at the time is a poor dairy community. If, if you visit Lexington today, it's a very wealthy, one of the wealthiest communities mm-hmm. in Massachusetts. Uh, but back then it was a poor dairy community where the number of cows outnumbered the number of residents in the community. <laughs> um, but so they were, they were at the forefront. And when the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, which was sort of this rebellious government that was uh, operating on the eve of the American Revolution in Massachusetts, in October, at the end of October of 1774, they're now advising the towns, hey, you might want to stop preparing for war with England, you might want to create a Minuteman company, you might want to get ready for the worst case scenarios. Lexington was already about six to eight weeks ahead. Uh, by about the beginning of September, they are already actively preparing for war. They're engaged in drilling operations, they're collecting munitions and, and checking out their militia company. So this is the mindset that's going on. And as a final though, which I, I forgot to mention earlier, you had the Boston Tea Party, uh, which took place in December of 1773. Lexington had the, uh, their own tea burning uh, roughly about two to three days before the Boston Tea Party. Uh, so I would say at this point, Lexington, if it is not on par with Boston's radicalism, is probably slightly ahead uh, at this time. <laughs>
3: uh, jump in here uh, and ask a question, Alex. Um... Clark, uh, I recently read a book. Uh, I think it was by Nina Sankovic, American Rebels. She took it mm-hmm. down. Isn't there a connection between the Clarks and that uh, the brain tree, the Quincy, the Adams, or am I combining families? There, 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 you're not yeah. there,
2: there was a connection between Clark's predecessor, who is the Reverend Hancock. Okay. Uh, the Reverend Hancock was cousins with. Uh, the Reverend um, with John Hancock. So you, you had the Reverend Hancock, who was cousins with John Hancock, the, the famous patriot leader. Now, that said, um, The Reverend Hancock, uh, Hancock was considered not just a leader of Lexington. A lot of the neighboring communities, as well as Boston, looked to him for guidance. So there were times when uh, Clark would be brought into Boston to give sermons on political issues. Uh, He was brought to Lincoln, he was brought to Concord, he was brought as far north as Andover and Newburyport. And so um, when on on the eve, on the the night before the Battle of Lexington and Concord, whenever the Massachusetts Provincial Congress would meet uh, in Concord, often John Hancock would stay at the Clark Parsonage. Now the Clark Parsonage was at one point the Reverend Hancock's home. Uh, so it's a natural place for him. So you, you sort of have this strong, I'm not gonna call it familial relationship but there's definitely a, a familiarity between the Hancocks of both Boston as well as the Hancocks and Clarks of Lexington.
3: It, uh, it's always interesting I worked the a few years at George Washington's Birthplace and I always say like, what's that <laughs> one moment that, that they code from being colonists revolutionaries and yes you always find that, yeah what's that and when we were writing the book it was okay what was that one moment where they decided and as you said they radicalized I mean Lexington within a short period of time but is there that one moment that is it the Stamp Act is a what is that
2: you said that, that few years I think it was in between you, you, you know it, it's interesting because I, I saw when does the bell ring that it becomes unrung that they, they hit that that level of radicalism. I think it was the Townsend Acts at that point. Um, I think they saw, there was this growing belief within Massachusetts as well as the other colonies that England through its economic policies was trying to enslave the colonists, that they were hoping to provoke a war through the Stamp Act, through the Townsend Act, the Intolerable Acts, et cetera. Um, I think it was around, somewhere around the Townsend Act that there was the final straw uh, where they felt that they were successful in the Stamp Act And less than three years later, here's the British government once again trying to do the same thing. And that sort of pushed Lexington over the line. And it was sort of at that point, it was a point of no return. Um, Again, as I said, by 1769, uh, Lexington is not only engaged in open boycotts, um, but again, they're engaging in these radical political statements where they are actually saying uh, that they are willing to defend their English liberties up to uh, military force if necessary. Uh, And it continues after Lexington and Concord. Of course, Lexington was just simply throwing gasoline on the fire at that point. Um, By 1776, where the state of Massachusetts uh, was contemplating, you know, do we support the Declaration of Independence? Lexington, again, was at the forefront sending letters to the Massachusetts legislature saying, oh, we are going to support this, we firmly believe it. Uh, so th- this again, uh, and again, it was through the leadership of Clark. Uh, so it undermines, uh, or it sort of uh, underscores, excuse me, um, the the growing or the evolving uh, position of the town uh, at the forefront.
1: Well, one of the questions that we get a lot, we do talks about Lexington and Concord is, you know, uh, with, with the, the British response, I mean, was there, do you think there could have been a better way for for Gage to respond to, to the arming of the, you know, the different communities or, uh, you know, because people always ask, well, like Phil just mentioned, when was that moment of no, no, no return? Um, you know, I mean, if you sit in Gage's shoes, I mean, what is he to do when he's got, you know, He's hearing all this information. He's mm-hmm. had the different things, the Salem alarm. You know, things happen at Portsmouth, New Hampshire. There's, there's different things going on. What was he to do? What, what, what do you think that possibly he could have done to have avoided the bloodshed that took place on the 19th? He,
2: he was, a, he was in a really between a rock and a hard place because when he arrived in Boston, on the one hand, during the French and Indian War, from what I understand, he was, he was a light infantry commander. Mm-hmm. And he was actually well-respected by, by the American colonists. Uh, up until the point he accepted command of of the uh, the British armies in North America and uh, command or, or accepted the role as military governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony. That was at that point, he, he sort of lost favor with Massachusetts. Um, so he was in a rock in a hard place. On the one hand, he had to follow um, British orders and, and British governmental policy. But on the other hand, right in this backyard, are basically towns and communities that are sort of thumbing their nose at him uh, with their outright ignoring British colonial law and policy. I think the best thing was, if you look at it, he, he was smart, he was able to successfully raid um, in powder, the Powder House raid in September of 1774, uh, where he went into a section of what, what is Cambridge, which is now uh, Somerville. Uh, under the cover of darkness and seized munitions in that area. The advantage he had for that particular raid was that he had an available waterway. He was able pretty much to row out to uh, Somerville uh, along the Mystic River uh, and then work his way back under the cover of darkness and, and the colonists had no idea what was going on until it was too late. The disadvantages he had at Salem and Concord and if he had decided, he didn't, but if he had decided to go to Worcester, they were just too far away. Okay. Uh, there was no reasonable operation he would have been able to follow. I think in hindsight, if, if I have to put you know my, my hindsight uh, view on, um, I think the best approach would have been the approach, and, and I don't know much about this, but I, I have heard about this, is there was a small little rebellion in Canada in the 19th century. Uh, it was—it's From what some 19th century historians have referred to me, uh, they said it was similar to Lexington and Concord. There was a brief flare up that lasted about a couple of months. And then what happened was is the British government realizing they could have another American revolution on their hand, instead turned around and negotiated for a peaceful settlement with the, um, uh, with the Canadians uh, to, bring, to bring peace. What Gage could have done, but I, I think again because of the rock in the hard place, he could have said to uh, his superiors, I need some sort of negotiation team, if you want to call it that, uh, over here to work with the Massachusetts Provincial Congress and see if we can defuse the situation. Uh, instead, uh, his superiors were pushing military response, military or policing action, uh, which is the result we got. Um, I think, in hindsight, the best policy would have been if he met with Hancock, Adams, Otis, and others, and tried to see if they could negotiate some form of resolution.
1: Yeah, and the one thing you always, uh, I've always felt, is that the you know his leadership over in Great Britain didn't understand the what was happening here. They seemed to underestimate the situation he was in. I I
2: agree. Um, They the the British government had for uh, precedent. Uh, probably two nations. You had India and Ireland uh, prior to the American Revolution, where uh, British colonial policy was tested out in those areas. They really didn't have much of any rebellion or or resistance. There was some, but not to the level they were experiencing in uh, Massachusetts, New England, as well as the American colonies as a whole. So as a result, I think the uh, parliament, as well as uh, King George's uh, ministerial council, were completely uh, caught off guard and, and underinformed informed about the gravity of the situation uh, in the American colonies.
1: So um, one thing I wanted to bring up that you don't hear much about in other books is the Lexington Training Band. You ah. call them ah. as you call them as they are supposed to be called, which is great. Yeah. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about the Lexington militia, the training band, the makeup of this group, you know, the, the men that are serving in these units, where are they from? You know, what's their social makeup? I know it's a big loaded question, but do your best. <laughs> <Absolutely>. this, is,
2: <laughs> this is one of my
1: favorite questions. And it goes
2: back to when I, I first became a Revolutionary War reenactor back in 1989, 1990. Uh, there was a member of my organization, uh, a retired police officer named uh, Mark Fourier. And Mark turned to me one day, we were at some small ceremonial event, and he turned to me and said, you know, there's no such thing as the Lexington Minute And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, the famous Lexington Minute that's is showing the green across the street from us. So it it ended up, I started doing some digging and and some researching, and he's actually 100% correct. There is no evidence at this point that a minute company existed in Lexington. Now I have to give my footnote in case there's somebody out who's watching us who may. Oh, they are. Okay, (laughs) Um, in uh, (laughs) I'm sure my mother is one of them. Um, In um, at some point after the Centennial, but before the Korean War, somebody walked into Lexington Town Hall and said, "Hey, I would love to see the town records from 1775, Lexington." The poor clerk turned over the documents to the person and the person walked, the original documents and walked out of the building with them, never to be seen again. So as a result, um, again, I had referenced uh, earlier before we came live, a historian from Concord named Joel Bowie. Uh, Joel Bowie and I have gone back and forth about the Lexington Minutemen and he encouraged me and he provided me multiple leads to recreate or rebuild without the town records, uh, this Lexington militia. So what we learned was, is the official town name of the uh, military unit in Lexington was known as the Lexington Training Band. That is an old 17th century English term. Many Massachusetts militia companies, so every town had at least one militia company. Uh, Some towns such as uh, where I grew up, North Andover, they were part of Andover at the time. They had at least four militia companies just because of the size of the town. Cambridge, um, which was next to Lexington, had at least three to four militia companies. Lexington had one. It was a giant company of about 100 to 130 men. They were called the Lexington Training Band. And again, the Training Band is an old English militia term that was brought over to the colonies in the 17th century. The commander was Captain John Parker. Now, the interesting myth about Captain John Parker is many people believe that he was a veteran of the French and Indian War that is actually not true. Um, he had no military experience. Uh, the first time that it appears in records that he served in the French and Indian War was 1894, uh, when a great granddaughter and grandson sort of threw this out at some historical society presentation saying, oh, he fought in every French war you could think of from the dawn of man till now, uh, to sort of create this myth that he was this fantastic uh, uh, bushfighter. But the fact that he had no military experience does not take away from, and as I'm sure we'll talk about today, it does not take away from the effective leader that he was. Um, you had uh, Lieutenant William Tidd, uh, who was the second in command. Uh, then you had a Ensign Robert Monroe, who actually was a veteran of the French and Indian Wars and actually did serve with uh, Rogers Rangers. He was uh, an experienced military veteran. Uh, and then you had a smattering of, of sergeants and uh, corporals as well in the organization. Um, the unit was training uh, as early as September of 1774, uh, four, uh, which is unusual again, because the Massachusetts Provincial Congress did not order um, units to start training until October. So a month to six weeks ahead of time, they're drilling. By November of 1774, the town is pretty much convinced war is coming. So as a result, uh, the town of Lexington starts uh, amassing stockpile of weapons. And one of the things they acquired was a pair of iron cannons, uh, which I recently uh, discovered. Uh, you know, I stumbled across it in, uh, in uh, doing some research uh, through some town records that did survive. Uh, they purchased them from the town of Watertown. Um, on top of that, you had multiple individuals uh, in Lexington who were acting in a logistical support. Um, you had John Parker, the captain, who was making powder horns uh, for his militia company. Um, you had uh, Jonathan Harrington, the father of the Pfeiffer uh, of the company, who was making cartridge boxes uh, for, the, uh, uh, for the militia company. You had uh, Jonas Parker. Uh, Jonas Parker was a carpenter uh, in Lexington. He was actually taking militiamen's muskets, uh, which were fouling pieces, hunting guns, and they were pretty much stocked to the muzzle, uh, so they couldn't accept bayonets. He was cutting back the wood so it was exposing the barrels so they could accept bayonets. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they were modifying weapons. You had other individuals who were acquiring blankets, making knapsacks. Uh, So this is a community effort that's going on. The militia company, according to an affidavit from Lieutenant William Tidd, indicated that the company was drilling frequently. Uh, It appears from what I was able to take a look, they are drilling at least twice to four times a week uh, in Lexington. Uh, if they're not drilling uh, on the town green, they're going over to a platoon commander's house where they would drill throughout the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a unit that um, even though it's, it's very, very large, um, it is uh, well-trained. Now the makeup, um, it was predominantly white. Uh, there was between one and five enslaved people, I, I take that back, one to four enslaved people, and one Freeman. Uh, that were part of the militia uh, company. The most famous is Prince Esterborn because he was wounded at the Battle of Lexington. Um, But you had other individuals, Jupiter Tree, uh, uh, there was uh, Silas Perdue, uh, there's other enslaved or free men who were part of the company. Um, The range of age ranges from militiamen who are about 15, 16 years old up until militiamen who are 50s and 60s years of age as well. Um, there are hints uh, that the town was start, but again, because the documents are missing, there are hints that the company was trying to create a Minuteman company. Um, they were trying to acquire bayonets uh, for as many of the militiamen, which bayonets would have been the first piece of weapon that would have gone to Minutemen uh, prior to Lexington and Concord. So the town is trying to acquire bayonets. They have the cannons. Uh, And so I would say the myth um, that this was a poorly trained and poorly equipped militia company prior to the Battle of Lexington is just that. It's a myth. Uh, This is a company that uh, at least two British officers at the Battle of Lexington said when they stepped on the green, they saw a militia company that was in formal military order, possibly divided by platoons, uh, which again shows that they were drilling hard. And then secondly, said they were fully armed and equipped, which means they had uh, bayonets, uh, or some other edged weapon, muskets, knapsacks, blankets, canteens, cartridge boxes, the full, uh, the full military accoutrements.
1: Right. One thing that, one thing that Phil and I learned, we were up there a few years ago, we gave a talk at the library. We mentioned about, um, the story about, you know, the Minutemen story, how they weren't Minutemen, and, you know, we got lots of eyeballs at us. So it's still up there. It's still very, uh, you it, know, it, it's still it, very a lot. That myth is very alive still. So
2: it, it's always going to be part of the New England heritage, um, right? And you know, maybe someday whoever stole those documents will feel guilty and return them. <laughs> um, but uh, we have we have exhausted just about every source we can find to see if we can. And the most we have is slight hints of an existence of a Minuteman company, but nothing that truly says Lexington had a Minuteman company. Right. Right.
3: Uh, got a, a, few, a few questions here for you. One actually came in on the off the chat. And says yes. was this community effort thing
2: common for militias in the U.S. or was it unique? That is an awesome question, and the answer is absolutely. Uh, every community—I uh, shouldn't say every community—the overwhelming majority of the Massachusetts and New Hampshire and Rhode Island communities uh, were engaged in this collective effort effort to arm and equip. Uh, It's militia and minute companies. A couple of examples. um, I I have, uh, I live again up in the Merrimack Valley region of of Massachusetts, a neighboring community of Haverhill. Uh, Haverhill had multiple minute and militia companies. Uh, They were actually trying to find ways to not only get cartridge boxes and bayonets to their soldiers, they were actually trying to acquire a uniform uh, as Mm. well. There was a discussion that they were actually going to adopt a blue and buff-faced uniform. You go to the neighboring town of Bradford. uh, Bradford, they hired two individuals uh, who were blacksmith. uh, And the blacksmith were actually scouring old rusted bayonets to make them usable again. And then they turned around and hired a uh, saddler uh, to make uh, cartridge boxes as well as uh, uh, bayonet slings to carry the weapons. Uh, The towns of Andover and Methuen, Massachusetts, their main priority was bayonets and bayonet slings. So they were, uh, the community effort was to try and and do that. Uh, If you go out to Springfield, Massachusetts, which is now a city, uh, Springfield, Massachusetts uh, actually put a lot of money into acquiring cartridge boxes uh, for its militiamen. So what you basically had as a result of these town efforts is, although you didn't have uniformity in dress, a lot of the companies had uniformity in equipment. Uh, so you did see a large percentage of uh, militiamen who were carrying similar cartridge boxes. I call them the D pouch pattern, which means basically the, the pouch was shaped like the letter D. Uh, they would have had bayonet slings, uh, blankets, and knapsacks. Now that doesn't mean every community uh, was doing it. I, I have to laugh, my hometown of Merrimack, Massachusetts was once part of Amesbury, Massachusetts. Amesbury, Massachusetts was sort of late to the game, and in March of 1775, they finally had a town meeting and decided, hey, should we create a Minuteman company? The town voted no. Uh, we're not going to create a Minuteman company. Well, what always happens in town meetings in New England, if you don't like it the first time around, you have a second it meeting. <laughs> again. And so they had, they had a second meeting, and the Minuteman company was created. Um, but they realized that financially they just could not afford to uh, support making cartridge boxes, knapsacks, blank, uh, acquiring blankets, bayonets. So they passed a resolution at the same second town meeting saying, "We'll create a Minuteman company, but Minutemen, you're on your own. Uh, you know, you're going to have to acquire your own arms and equipment." So,
3: uh, no, great. Uh, thanks, and um, it's a formative uh, one of the. Uh, follow-up questions is uh, we have some reenactors um, and obviously there's also one of the things we do in our books is try to have the power place. So for people <laughs> who have not been there, what is it like uh, to be on Lexington Green on the morning of April 19th? Because I did find out that you
2: do portray Samuel Hastings Jr.? Uh, <laughs> I originally played uh, Samuel Hastings Jr. Uh, now I've been playing Jonas Parker. Uh, so, so both of them are fascinating characters. Uh, John, uh, Samuel Hastings Jr. I originally played uh, portrayed up until about 2012. Uh, he was 17 at the Battle of Lexington. Uh, so obviously, I can't pass as a Samuel Hastings anymore. It's sure, good you can. As I, yeah, I know. I'm a good-looking <laughs> guy. <laughs> Um, Samuel Hastings had had an interesting history because he served at Lexington and Concord and then he eventually joined the siege of Boston, and then enrolled in the 12th Continental Regiment. Uh, because of his size and stature, he was actually uh, chosen to be a bodyguard for General Charles Lee. Uh, and of course his luck would have it, when Lee was captured in 1776, Hastings was one of the uh, lifeguards who was captured with him. Uh, so he pretty much was in captivity on a prison a prison hulk in, in uh, uh, New York Harbor until about 1777 or 1778 when he was paroled and the subsequent documents I found later on where he was complaining that he could not re-enlist in the war because he was under parole and he really treated that very seriously. But in 2012-2013 I was asked, asked to portray Jonas Parker Uh, Jonas Parker, uh, at the time of the Battle of Lexington, was 53 years old. Um, Jonas Parker is the individual who, according to 19th century affidavits, was shot uh, during the Battle of Lexington, uh, struggled back to his knees and returned fire, and then was bayoneted uh, on the green. So as as the background, I have to give that. Um, The Battle of Lexington reenactment is actually a wild, wild ride, is the best way I can describe it. Uh, there's been times uh, I've been out on the green where it is raining or snowing and I'm saying, what am I doing? Uh, there's been other times we've had some weird New England weather. It was like 90 degrees out. And again, I'm saying, what am I doing? I could take up golf or you know take up you know, something else. Uh, but when you get on the green and just as the sun is coming up and you're realizing at about 5, 530 in the morning where it's probably at its dark, the sun is starting to come up, but it's still at the darkest point. You're like, oh my God, this is what the militia really felt like. Um, and there's that sort of moment, just as you're hearing the, uh, the British reenactors coming up, Massachusetts Ave, uh, you can hear the footsteps and you can hear the drums beating. And you get this feeling like there's something very, very serious coming. And so there's definitely that sense of you were there. Now, in 2012, 2013, when I, I took over the role of Jonas Parker, I get bayoneted on the green. Um, and that—that that is a scary, scary thing. And I'm sure my wife, who's like a room over from me, she's not wild about it. Yeah, uh, Because there, <laughs> was, there, there was an accident about 2015 or 2016 where a British grenadier sort of came in too low and his, his blade pierced my breeches. Uh, and I could feel the blade running across the top of my knee. Uh, I was like, oh my God. Um, but just to see... You know, so the, the usual reenactor I work with the bayonetting, he and I, you know, are very safe with each other. This was a year that we had a substitute time. This British reenactor, his wife had the audacity to be pregnant. <laughs> um, but uh, we, we do rehearse a couple of times during the year. But at that moment when I'm on, you know, kneeling on the ground, you know, portraying Jonas Parker, returning fire, and I'm seeing a British soldier coming at me with bayonet leveling, it, it's a horrifying thought, you know, that the think what maybe Parker was thinking at that time going, this is it, I am literally, I'm losing my life on the green in support of the common cause, which was what Lexington was commonly pushing uh, to its community that, um, you know, you need to be ready to sacrifice your life so that your wife and children or your families can continue on with the, the life we're accustomed to. And the thing that often runs in my mind also about Jonas Parker, again, he was 53 years old. Many people think that he was elderly. I know in the movie, April Morning, which is I think, a 1987, 88 movie, they portray Jonas Parker as about 70 or 80 years old. (laughs) Uh, He was really about 53 years old. Most of his children were adult children, but he did have, at the time of the Battle of Lexington and Concord, a 13-year-old special needs child. Um, And his wife, who was very, very ill if she hadn't passed away already, so to think all this is going through his mind right. as he's about to be killed um, is just overwhelming. Um, so so that's in a nutshell if I had to give a, a minute, you know, a <laughs> summation yeah. of what's it like on the Battle of Lexington reenactment.
1: That's that's the wild ride we go through. Yeah, the, the last time Phil and I were there was like three years ago, Phil, COVID has mm-hmm. made time just change for me. It was raining <laughs> raining <laughs> yeah, raining sideways and snowing partially. It was cold and wet.
2: (laughs) I I remember that reenactment because we we also had a young man who um, had a -a make-a-wish request that he wanted to be an American Revolutionary War reenactor at Lexington and Concord. Wow. And so um, there was a nor'easter that was coming through. And so we actually um, had him, he trained to be a drummer. So he participated in drumming. Um, he showed up to every reenactment we did. That's the great. reenactors are falling over each other just to give him attention. Mm-hmm. And so we've got this nor'easter that hits about two hours before the Battle of Lexington and Battle of Lexington reenactment, and it is raining sideways. The winds are going thirty miles an hour. It's probably thirty degrees out. And you know, this is a discussion from the town: Do we continue with this event? And to their credit, the Lexington Minutemen said because of the opponents' have this kid's, this is his wish. We're going to do it. The organization told the town, we're going forward with or without you. You mm. can arrest us if you want, but we're going to get that's you his wish. And it was, it was a, I remember being bayoneted and laying down in the mud and it's raining. And I'm soaked straight through. I'm cold. I was like, you know something? For this kid to, you know, get his wish, I'll do it three times over
1: again. It was, it, that's, was, that's it was amazing. So you,
2: we were probably across the field from each other at that event.
1: Huh, yeah, we did. I did obviously know the backstory of that. That's amazing. Mm. Phil and I were amazed. You all still did it, but it was pretty yeah. cool. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Um, so just kind of give everyone a, kind of a, a quick background. Um, so if you could take us to the events of the you know late April 18th into April 19th there in Lexington, you know with with, with the militia being called out and then sure. you know the whole Buckman Tavern story with everyone loves talking about drinking at the tavern and going back out later absolutely. on absolutely you can kind of just give us a quick run through for those who haven't heard the details of what's going on in Lexington in the evening of April 18th into the early morning of the 19th
2: absolutely so as as an initial pro- promotion I'm going to encourage your followers if they're not following my tour company, Untapped History uh, on Facebook, please do so immediately, because throughout the next couple of days, we are actually doing real-time postings throughout the entire uh, 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 Patriots Day, April 18th, April 19th uh, days. So right around this point now, uh, if we had to go 246 years ago, right now at 736 uh, Eastern time. Um, we have Solomon Brown, uh, who is a Lexington resident. Uh, he was riding on horseback uh, up the Bay Road, which is the road to Boston. And he is somewhere in either Cambridge or Monotony, which is a section of Cambridge, modern day Arlington. And he suddenly sees about eight or nine British officers ahead of him. Now, he thinks it's a little unusual because the weather's pretty nice, yet they're wearing heavy blue overcoats, which are sort of winter gear. Um, he eventually, you know, they're sort of moving at a very slow pace, so he sort of catches up to them, and as he happens to look over at them, depending upon the account you read, one account says the wind, a sudden gust of wind comes along and blows one of the officer's coats open, and he sees a brace of pistols. Another account says that he could see the shape of pistols underneath the coat, but regardless, he is absolutely kind of, he's kind of scared of what he saw. As soon as he passes the officers, he breaks into a gallop and immediately rides to Monroe Tavern, which is in Lexington, and sees Sergeant William Monroe. Uh, Sergeant William Monroe is the orderly sergeant. He's probably about fourth or fifth in command of the company. And Brown reports to Sergeant Monroe, this is what I just saw down the road. Now, they're a little concerned because whenever the Massachusetts Provincial Congress would meet in Concord. John Hancock and Samuel Adams would stay in Lexington, usually with the Reverend Jonas Clark, again, because of that familial relationship we talked about. Now, on this particular night, both Hancock and uh, Adams are in Lexington, and there is a concern that these British officers are out to arrest the pair. So, as a result, Sergeant William Monroe um, dispatches uh, a detail of guard to the Hancock Clark House to protect these two politicians. About 9 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, the British officers sort of saunter through um, uh, Lexington, and they continue heading westward. This is sending all sorts of triggers throughout the entire community. This is really unusual for this to be taking place at night. Uh, So as a result, Captain Parker uh, consults with the town leaders and decides to mobilize the town militia. By about 11 o'clock at night, most of the militia is reco- uh, is currently occupying uh, Buckman Tavern, which is across from the Lexington Green. Buckman Tavern, uh, of course, is, let's just put it, it's an 18th century tavern slash bar slash hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, tavern's purposes in the 18th century, they were places of gathering, they were places to get your news, they were also a place to get a drink. So were the Lexington militia drinking that evening? That is an excellent yes. question um i go back to my business partner with my tour company we always have we discuss the drinking habits of colonial americans uh today the three of us would probably drink about maybe of course we're all getting our drinks right now as we're talking i thought
1: it was appropriate
2: Uh, yeah it's perfect timing uh colonial uh uh, excuse me modern day americans would drink about maybe a gallon to two gallons of pure alcohol per per year okay Mm -hmm. back in the 1770s through the 1790s, your average uh, colonial American would be drinking roughly about five to six gallons. Uh, the belief was water back then was considered poison. Uh, so as a re- and they look at the Thames River, they look at English treatment of the, of the riverways and waterways as the basis. So as a result, alcohol was the, the choice of drink, normally high, hard cider, uh, rum, whiskey was starting to come about a bit. Uh, you also had bourbon that was being imported in. So, it's not outside the realm of possibility that the Lexington militia was consuming alcohol that evening. Were they considered absolutely blotto drunk? I'd like to think not. I hope not, given the seriousness of it. But uh, at the same time, we should recognize yes, they were consuming alcohol that night. So, with the people who were in the tavern, uh, eventually it, an unidentified militiaman turns to, once again, Solomon Brown and a couple of other teenagers in the uh, Lexington militia and basically says, hey guys, why don't you go do a road trip? Get a couple of horses, why don't you go find out what's going on with these British officers and follow them. Uh, of course, the three teenagers were like, once again, road trip, let's go. And they jump on horseback and they try to shadow the British officers. Of course, the British officers were trained well enough that they were able to sort of put out flankers, they were able to take advantage of shadows. Brown and his two other companions were caught very quickly and captured. By 11 o'clock at night, uh, around 11, 1130 at night, uh, Paul Revere arrives in Lexington. uh, Now, of course, his famous ride. Uh, His job is to first notify um, uh, Hancock and Adams that, uh, hey, there's a British operation that just left Boston and they are on their way towards Concord. About an hour later, William Dawes arrives. The interesting thing, which surprisingly, shame on me. I didn't know until this year. Dawes actually left before Revere. Uh, he took an overland route. Uh, and sort of took the scenic way to get towards right. Lexington, where Revere took a more direct route. Um, Dawes confirmed what Revere had uh, indicated. There was some debate when the two alarm riders arrived, who is the object of this British expedition force? Is it Hancock and Adams in the Provincial Congress, or is it the military stores in Concord? And there's some great debate that goes back and forth between uh, Hancock, Adams, the Reverend Jonas Clark, John Parker, uh, Revere and Dawes, and ultimately the decision is they are marching towards uh, Concord. Uh, Hancock and Adams are a secondary target at best. Um, Hancock and uh, Adams uh, at that point decide that eventually they're gonna evacuate the town. Revere and Dawes decide that they're gonna continue on to Concord, to alert Concord and to try and uh, evacuate the stores that are located there, um, and Captain John Parker uh, mobilizes the Lexington militia. Uh, so by midnight, one o'clock, the Lexington training band is assembled on the uh, town common, uh, waiting for further orders. Now the weird, not weird, but the phenomenon that happens next, and I'll give a, about a 30, 45 second uh, summation of it, is um, a panic sets in in the town. Because uh, keep in mind for years, Ministers on the pulpit, as well as politicians are talking about how evil <laughs> the British army is, and now they're marching directly towards Lexington. Uh, the women and children and some of the men begin to panic, uh, and as a result, they start to evacuate the town. Uh, there are accounts of, uh, of people who are carrying pregnant women on mattresses for a mile or two to get them out of the potential combat scenarios. Uh, Anna Monroe, who is the wife of Sergeant William Monroe, is breaking down crying as she makes bread for her husband for the campaign she expects he's going to leave on. Um, And she's crying. She's like, I'm never going to see my husband again. Uh, There are uh, mothers who are trying to gather multiple toddlers together to try and get them to safety. And then you have this militia company that's assembled on the green going, we're ready for war now.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And so this is everything that is taking place within Lexington. Uh, of course, as you go, as soon as Revere and Dawes arrive, they're captured uh, within about a half hour after they left the common. And, and of course, right. they, they're with Solomon uh, Brown and, and the Lexington Riders
0: as well.
1: Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty amazing because you know, everyone uh, knows the general story of what happens on the green that morning but right. the you know, the details that you just talked about isn't really known right like the, the fact that all this is going on before the the regulars even arrive in town you know it's it's, it's pretty amazing yeah
2: it, it, it the I, I refer to it as a civilian evacuation of, sure. of 1775 and it came about as a result of jim hollister who's the head interpretive ranger at minute man national park uh he and i started talking in 2016 about what were some of the other aspects besides the, the battle you know, that, that we should know about? The first project he and I worked on uh, were the loyalist guides, because there were loyalist guides who you know, accompanied the uh, uh, the British column out to uh, Concord. Uh, but after that, it was like, well, what about the civilian experience? It, it, we didn't realize many town stories and many town records along the Bay Road referenced this phenomenon, but nobody ever really put it into a, a consolidated piece of information. So as a result, Jim Holliston and I said, Let's attack this and see what we can come up with. And we didn't realize just how much of a panic it was. It wasn't just Lexington. It was everywhere from Cambridge, Massachusetts, westward Mm -hmm. to Concord. And then two days later, uh, just to show you how much Massachusetts Bay Colony was on edge, when a rumor started uh, in Ipswich, Massachusetts, that there was a landing of British soldiers and they were laying waste to Essex County in revenge for Lexington and Concord, all of Essex County abandoned. They just all moved north to New Hampshire to uh, to stay out of you know the way. This is the, the tense, the tenseness that's going on at that particular time. Yeah. So uh, we're
3: gonna uh, test you, Alex. Here we had a uh, question in the chat and said, uh, did the Brown Bess pattern or the French Rampart used during the historical engagement? Well, oh, uh,
2: I am so glad that question was asked because I was recently <laughs> asked to look into that issue. Um, the most, so you, the most common weapon that was used by the Lexington militia, and I'm going to focus on the Lexington militia, but you could apply this to just about every Massachusetts militia company at the time. The most common weapon that was used, what was referred to as a fouling piece or a, uh, or a hunting gun. It was a smooth bore weapon, equivalent to probably a shotgun today. Uh, Might have had, at best, uh, on a really good day, an effective range of 100 yards, closer to probably 50 yards. Uh, There were a couple of different types of styles of fouling guns. There was the New England pattern, um, which I believe mimicked uh, uh, French design. There was Dutch pattern uh, fouling pieces. Uh, There was also uh, what was referred to as the Hudson Valley uh, type styles. These were all guns that were actually made in the New England area. Uh, And they were available commercially. So as a result, at some point in a militiaman's life, he would have purchased this gun. Or the town would have purchased it on his behalf. Going to military weapons, uh, the most common two weapons I was able to find was the pattern 17, I'm going to get the date wrong, I know I am, so I apologize, the pattern 1742-40 British brown, what you want to call the British brown brass, it was actually the first model, um, as well as Dutch uh, weapons as well. Uh, What would happen is is if, you know, Philip, Rob, and myself enlisted during the French and Indian War, and we did not bring any weapon with us, the Massachusetts Bay Colony would have issued a musket to us. Uh, And the two most common issued to uh, Massachusetts provincial soldiers during the French and Indian War was this pattern 1742, uh, 3842, uh, or a Dutch gun. Uh, which was usually about pattern 1720s uh, area. Usually the British government would empty out its oldest guns and ship them off to the colonies. Uh, so oldest guns were coming out first to the American colonies. Many British officers from the French and Indian War complained, hey we gave these guns to Alex Philip and Rob. they never returned them when the one <laughs> campaign service was over. So these military weapons were, were in the hands of British um, uh, 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 American militiamen. After that, the number one choice, if you put aside the Fowlers, if you put aside the um, uh, Dutch and British guns, there was a desire to acquire French guns. Uh, so you would have had the pattern 1728, uh, which was very common, uh, commonly uh, acquired weapon by uh, Massachusetts militiamen. Um, French, the, the 1728. I'm going to be wrong, and, and some of our, our listeners today are going to come back and yell at me for this, but I often will refer to it as the AK-47 of the 18th century. Uh, it was very popular. It was easy to disassemble. It was very reliable. Um, and uh, a lot of them were acquired during the siege of uh, Louisburg in 1745. Mm-hmm. And I do have Massachusetts provincial soldiers who, in the field, in their journals, are saying, hey, you know, I was in an engagement with a, a French uh, enemy. We won, I then plundered the dead Frenchman of his French gun. Um, There are also some French guns that are on display between the Massachusetts Historical Society, Lexington Historical Society. I believe at least two of the Lexington militiamen that I've seen their guns uh, could be possibly dated back to uh, 1728. The last area for overseas military weapons may have been a smattering of Spanish guns. Um, They might have gotten from the siege of Havana. In the early 1720s, um, but if I had to pick, your first choice was fowling pieces, which were the civilian shotguns of the time. Uh, second, two would have then been, been Dutch or British. Third choice
1: would have been French. Yeah, p- uh, people are chiming in here on this on this gun discussion. It's pretty amazing. There's a big interest in this, <laughs> so uh, you're hitting the chord here. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's great stuff. Um, so you know. Looking at our time here, we got about 10, 15 minutes left. Um, we won't go through all the events of April 19th, obviously, but one of the things I wanted to ask you, um, as someone who's written about Lexington, given tours, mm-hmm. been there on the green for the anniversary, what's one of your most frustrating myths that come from the events of 19th? It doesn't have to be just Lexington. It can be Lexington and yeah. Concord. It can be Battle Road. You know, uh, What's one of those things out there that you hear a lot that you kind of wish we could fix?
2: You know, I, I think the, the big one, I'd I have to. One, I'm sort of a purist over the years. Um, I've become more and more I, I call my midlife crisis that I become a progressive or a hardcore reenactor mm-hmm. uh, so as, as a result you know my midlife crisis is I'll, I'll sleep in the open field with a blanket and that's it and Mrs. Kane will say you're nuts um, <laughs> but the uh, the two myths I, I've seen one is the clothing that there was this big perception in the 19th century that everyone went out in their shirt sleeves with just a musket and a horn right. and nothing else and it's like how they even load the guns? Where are they keeping everything? Mm-hmm. But the bigger one was the military organization. There is still this ongoing perception that minutemen were these individualists uh, who just simply grabbed their gun, you know, left the plow behind, and just ran into the battle. And it was every man for himself. Uh, and that actually was not the case, um, as I indicated earlier. Uh, minute and militia companies were organized on a town level. Okay, so. The, you had your militia company. Minuteman companies sprung forth from the, from the militia companies in 1774, 1775. Usually your Minuteman companies were your younger guys in the town. They were usually between 17 and 24. And then maybe the officers were late 20s, early 30s. And I always use this as an analogy my son and myself. My son is uh, going to be turning 21 uh, next month, so we'll be sure to have a drink for him. Um, but um, if he and I had to have a race to the town common, he's getting there well before I am. Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna be stopping at least three times the vomiter, get to vomit or catch my breath. Um, so th- there was, when you, when the town militia companies were organized, there was a legitimate organization. But on top of that, there was actually a regimental organization as well on the county level. Uh, so as a result, you would have, let's take Lexington. Lexington was part of the 1st Middlesex Regiment, which means that it was a regimental commander, Thomas Gardner. Uh, and under his command, he had militia companies from Lexington, Monotomy, Cambridge, Charlestown, etc. Uh, up where I live in Essex County, uh, the militia companies were part of the 4th Essex Regiment of Foot, uh, where you had the Andovers, you had Bradford, Haverhill, Salisbury, Amesbury. They also had a minute battalion, which was all the Minuteman companies from the town. So this belief that uh, the town's, it was just this individualistic approach was not correct. The, the companies were all organized on the town and county level. And on top of that, they were not poorly armed and equipped. They were well trained. A perfect example, which I was really excited to find, was the um, Minuteman Battalion of Essex County, my area, the Merrimack Valley region, which was under the command of Colonel James Fry. I kept on getting this reference to a guy named George Marsden who was training the Minuteman companies in Andover, Bradford, Haverhill. I was like, who the heck is this guy? Is he a French and Indian War veteran? Is he a guy who just likes studying drills? Turns out he was a British deserter. Hmm. Um, He deserted, I forget the regiment off the top of my head but he deserted in 1774. Uh, ended up in uh, the the Merrimack Valley region of uh, Massachusetts. And in exchange for them protecting him, he had this little business where he was training all the Minuteman companies in the area. And so, you know, when people think that these uh, Minuteman companies were not organized and trained, they were just individuals going out there, that's not the case. They were well supplied uh, within reason. I mean, not everyone had bayonets and there was still some ammunition shortage, but they were well supplied. They were fairly well trained They were organized on the company level. They were organized on the uh, regimental level. And when they hit the British column, it wasn't simply jumping into the fight. They specifically chose locations along the battle road to hit them ambush style. The perfect example is John Parker and Parker's Revenge. He chose, as a result of the archeological study of that site in Minuteman National Park, he chose an ambush site, which was over a small bridge over a stream. So the entire British column had to constrict itself to cross the bridge. And there in the afternoon of April 19th is is the Lexington Company looking for revenge for the morning battle. It was a perfect ambush site. It it had all the perfect uh, selections for that particular day. So that's the myth, if I would have to say the takeaway is the Minutemen and militia of April 19th were far more trained and organized than many people think. Uh, uh,
3: Thanks for tackling the myth. Well, you actually, it's a good segue because you, uh, Talked about that April nineteenth. Obviously, Colonel or uh, the Captain Parker's company looking for revenge. You yeah. talked earlier about a civilian exodus or mm-hmm. uh, um, evacuation. So, what happens after the morning in uh, Lexington? I mean, uh, later that night, April. I mean, we know they come back through the fighting at what Mononate yeah. in Arlington. But what about Lexington post morning, April nineteenth?
2: Th- this is a testament to. John Parker's ability as a military leader, and this is why I I really feel strongly about the fact that, hey, so what if he was not a veteran of the French and Indian War? John Parker was able to successfully rally a defeated troop. The Lexington militia is the only defeated unit of the day. They were swept from the field. They had the highest casualty rates of the day. Um, You had uh, eight killed, 10 wounded, just completely driven from the field. And now they've realized that British are going to be coming back through their town. Parker and the men of Lexington could have taken the easy route and simply said, You know, something, we're done for the day. We're going to go, you know, hide somewhere. We're going to wait till everything passes. To his credit, John Parker inspires his troops to say, We are going to re enter the combat and we're going to get back and we're going to attack and, and, and get something, get some revenge for what happened this morning. And so what happens is, some point around 11 o'clock in the morning, after they have buried their dead, now they have buried their dead in a makeshift grave covered by brush, because they're convinced the British are going to defile the grave on the way back. Um, He convinces them that we're going to re-enter the fight. And so the militia company is now about full capacity. There's about 100 plus men, fully armed and equipped, and they march into battle. The town legend is they marched off to an old Jacobite rebellion song, the White Cockade, Um, Mm. but they marched to a site called Parker's Revenge, which is near Pine Hill along the Lexington-Lincoln Line. Uh, Meanwhile, the, the civilians in town, the women, children, and some men are evacuating again. They came back after the Battle of Lexington, but now they realize the fight's about to come back to us. We need to evacuate again. So in the militiamen's mind, They're like, I'm not going to know what's going to happen to my wife. I have no idea what's going to happen to my son or daughter. I have no idea what's going to happen to my home. They're probably, they may not be there when I come back. So Parker is looking for revenge. And so he selects this site, um, what is now called Parker's Revenge, uh, which is a small outcropping in a woodlot just on the Lincoln Line. There's multiple outhouses. There's multiple boulders. Uh, It is a perfect ambush site. Because as I mentioned, not only do the British have to cross a stream at this site, so they have to bring in all their flankers to cross, there's like an obstacle course that the British have to cross to get to Parker. Uh, so he hits them hard uh, with a couple of volleys and then he withdraws. Um, the fight eventually continues and pours into Lexington and it really becomes nasty because you have uh, General Earl Percy, who is a uh, relief force rise in town to save the British expedition, and he has about 1,100 men. So now the British forces combined between the morning expedition to Concord and now this rescue force, is about 800, uh, excuse me, 1,800 men in force with artillery. And so uh, you're seeing instances where the British artillery is firing uh, cannonballs through Lexington's meeting house, which not only is just a governmental building, it's also the town's church at right. the time. So it's very offensive. Uh, Eventually, um, they start to withdraw from Lexington, but Percy realizes that if we are withdrawing, he notices in East Lexington, through monotony into Cambridge, the houses along the road are getting closer and closer to the road and and closer together. It's becoming a very dangerous situation for him. So as a result, he orders uh, the British soldiers to go house to house to clear it and then burn the houses. So you have multiple homes in Lexington going into monotony where the fight is literally hand-to-hand, room-to-room, and house-to-house. It's very bloody. And then on top of that, the British are torching the houses and pillaging the houses as well. Um, So what is happening, uh, they're going in, they're clearing the houses of the enemy, the militiamen and Minutemen. Then other British soldiers are going in looting. And then the third wave of British are burning the houses. Uh, From a... Massachusetts Lexington residents point of view, this is highly, highly offensive. Uh, house breaks and looting are considered on par with, um, with murder. It's considered a capital crime. Uh, so this is taking place and this is the mindset. So when many of the residents after the British left uh, Lexington and continued on their retreat, as far as I know, the Lexington militia stopped pursuing the, uh, the column probably because of the death and destruction that was taking place in their town. But when they came back and visited the houses in East Lexington around Monroe Tavern as well, many houses are burned, many houses are ransacked, they're subject to multiple theft, there's dead British soldiers on the front lawn, their livestock has been killed. The town is economically devastated as a result of the, uh, of the events of April 19th.
1: Yeah, and and reading some reading your book here the past couple of days, you have a lot of good research on what happens well, in Lexington you. afterwards, and and their support for their for their uh, militia and their men who are in the Boston Siege as well. So yes. um people just April nineteenth, Lexington. You know, that's it. But you know, it continues on like every community in the Revolution. You know, they're 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 left to deal with a lot of different things after that April nineteenth action. So. Um, you, you cover that really well in your book. Oh, thank so. you.
2: It, it, it's tough. The one thing I always put as a footnote, and at some point I, I have to document it more, is I call it the Second Lexington, which took place at the Battle of Monmouth. Uh, Lexington ha- had a company in the 15th Massachusetts under the command of Edmund Monroe, and they took a direct artillery hit uh, at the height of the battle. Uh, sadly, Edmund Monroe, who was a Lexington resident who did fight at the Battle of Lexington and Concord, he was decapitated as a result. Mm. The battle. And I believe there was about five or six Lexington men who were either killed or wounded as a result. So this just keeps going on. Lexington continued to, to, to funnel troops and money and support throughout the war. Um, in the months after Lexington and Concord, uh, Lexington actually became an artillery park. Um, they were actually making carriages uh, for uh, cannon pieces that would be support uh, the war effort during the siege of Austin. Uh, so,
1: it, and that's just a
2: snapshot. Lexington was heavily, heavily involved in, in the military operations and the political operations after uh, April
1: 19th. Yeah. And I just want to tell you, Phil and I have keep looking off the screen because there's a ton of chat going on here. <laughs> so uh, people are really, really interested. I wish we had more time, but people are really interested in this. And to, to that end uh, yeah. if you could talk for a few a little bit about uh your blog and untapped history so people sure. know we we have been sharing uh alex's in time post on our facebook page but please go check out his page because you have information all year long on, on this stuff so if you can kind of share a little bit sure. about your blog and your and your website and your tour company
2: thank you so i i, I have two you know predominantly i'm um, you know similar to you guys i i'm in higher education but my hobby slash side business uh, <laughs> or side, side activities. Um, I run a blog and recently launched podcast uh, called Historical Nerdery. Uh, Historical Nerdery, you can find it at historicalnerdery.com. Uh, is a, uh, it focuses on Lexington and Concord, as well as Revolutionary War in New England. Uh, usually most of my postings tend to focus on the events around April 19th, uh, 1775 in the Siege of Boston. Uh, although I do have a, a secondary interest in the loyalist experience during the American Revolution. So I will often post about uh, the loyalist experience. About three or four years ago, a fellow higher education uh, friend of mine, uh, he and I were both soccer coaches together and we were at a uh, soccer banquet having drinks. And um, you know, he, he, he's a big history nerd himself. And he said, we, we should do something. And so we ended up starting a historical walking tour to company called uh, Untapped History. Uh, the company, you can find us at untappedhistory.com. Uh, it focuses on uh, the history of Newburyport, Massachusetts, which is located in the Northeast region of Massachusetts. Uh, Newburyport was heavily, heavily involved in privateer operations during the American Revolution. So we've been having a walking tour where it's a two-hour tour. Uh, the first hour is the walk of the, uh, of the tour. Uh, the second half, you end up in a restaurant where we serve you historic alcoholic drinks from the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Uh, so it's a, a lot of fun. Our motto is you laugh, you learn, you drink. Uh, so that is a historical uh, nerdery and untapped history.
1: That's a great recipe, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, and I do that quite, Phil and I do yeah. that quite a bit, even though he's in yeah. Florida. Phil comes up this way a lot. We were, we went to Lake George, New York, a couple of years ago, Yorktown okay. last year, Camden, South Carolina. So Phil and I try to get out as much as we can with some of Excellent. our emerging Rev work, guys. Um, so I do want to mention I have, I think it's the third edition. of This is your book right here. That we is my stood, latest edition. We, we stood our ground. Um, yep. Any recommendation people can find it other than Amazon? The other than that, um,
2: if you if you go to my uh, website, historicalnerdery.com, there is a link uh, to it. Uh, usually you can get it amazon.com. Oh, God, I'm trying to think of the other site. Um, I apologize. I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Um History camp uh, often will uh, will have links uh, to my book uh, as well. Um, But if you can't find it, you should be able to get it on Amazon. But again, um, there's there's a link on my website to the bookstore. Okay. Uh, if you click on books, you should be able to find it and shame on me. I should remember they're going to kill That's
1: me. That's okay. I always try to give people an opportunity to give other than Amazon. If right. Oh, out absolutely, there, right. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazon's doing fine right now. So. Exactly. <laughs>
2: I, I prefer to support the small, the, right. the smaller stores as well. Uh, if you're having trouble uh, finding it, just shoot me a message through uh, my website and I, I will definitely uh, send you a couple of links.
1: And. I will say for anyone who's watching, who's really interested in American Revolution, the, the appendices in this are amazing. Oh, like the research, it goes into the clothing. I mean, it's 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 great stuff. And I read it every April um, up to tonight. So uh, it's, it's a great read. So thank you. I, I also want to say that, you know, people always worry about young people not interested in history. I know we have an 11 year old from Alabama watching us right now. All right. We have we have lots of young people watching. So excellent young people are interested in history and and that's always a myth. So um, I used to be one of those young people, no longer young, but uh, it's still something that people find interesting. And April 19th and April 18th, we didn't go into Paul Revere tonight because that's been covered so much over history, but that still inspires, I think with many people, the myth of Paul Revere's ride, uh, you know, all the myths out there, but I think it still interests people. The story of that, what happens North Church and what happens in the green there at Lexington? It's a, it's an amazing story, It you know,
2: it, it's a wonderful story. And I'm thrilled to hear that you're telling me there's so many young people. You know, hello yep. to the 11 year old
1: from Alabama. There you, uh,
2: you know, fun, fun story. I often say is my own daughter. Uh, my daughter is a history nerd um, as well, although she's into World War II history. Uh, fun story. I was off at a reenactment up in Canada. Now I'm going back to probably about 2010, 2011, and I called my family just to check in. And my wife told me how she, my daughter was, who at the time I think was eight, was so upset because she loved history so much and wanted to reenact with me. Uh, so she became a reenactor for about five years. She portrayed a child refugee uh, for a loyalist <laughs> group I participated in, but it goes to show. She's very big. She can run circles around me right now in uh, with <laughs> history. So for the young ones who are on the, on the show tonight, I, I think that's awesome. Keep doing what you're doing. And uh Let's get in touch at some point, you know, you know, if you ever want research for something you're interested, contact the three of us.
1: Yeah, it'd be great. So yeah. for all those watching, just remember, 246 years tonight. There's some crazy yep. things going on and outside of Massachusetts, outside Boston, Massachusetts. And um, I know everyone's doing virtual this weekend for Patriots yeah. weekend. But, uh, you know, Phil and I hope to be there next year. Hopefully COVID allowed by <laughs> God, I hope we can get up there next year. <laughs> I, I, I hope so. I'm I'm am a little upset at Phil that he hasn't invited us down
2: to Miami. I know there's a lot of clubs and stuff on there. You're off my Christmas list. Yeah, uh, but, but no, I, I I would I would extend to both you if you do come up there next year, you better look me up. I will definitely, definitely. G- we'll, give you a personal tour of the
1: area. We'll definitely do that. So, uh, well, thank you again, Alex, for for tonight, and 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 everyone, please check out his his Facebook page, his blog. Uh, you know definitely read this. This If you need one book or two books, Phil and I have one too, but if you need two (laughs) books, on that, (laughs) Phil's going to hit me later for saying that, but uh, Alex's book is is fantastic. The amount of research in this is is amazing. I just want to remind everyone, we'll be back here in two weeks on May 2nd, covering the 250th anniversary of the Battle of Alamance. Uh, There'll be a big debate if that was the first Battle of the American Revolution or not. I have my answer, but I think Phil has his answer, but we'll go ahead and debate that in two weeks with uh, the staff at the Battle of Alamance State Park There in North Carolina, so their anniversary is coming up here in a few weeks in May. And of course, we have our Emerging Revolutionary War Symposium on May 22nd, Mm -hmm. and we have a bus tour, Trenton and Princeton, November 12th through 14th. Hopefully we can get on the bus with people and tour uh, the actions of uh, 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 Trenton and Princeton here in November. So thanks again, Alex, for for joining us and thank you everyone for watching. And please stay tuned to Alex's Facebook page for end time updates of what's happening 246 years tonight um, in Lexington. Thanks again, everyone. Take care. Thank you very much, gentlemen.